right up front, sorry if my mic quality is noticeably worse for this intro, I promise it doesn't affect the rest of the show, but I'm doing all my post-production work on my laptop right now while I'm in Texas, so I'll keep my intro and outro real short for these. Apologies if it's something you look forward to, although I'm not sure anyone super looks forward to it. My name is Colton Petrie, and thank you for listening to the Just Dumb Enough podcast. My guest today is Maddie Osman founder of The Blogsmith, as well as author of Writing for Humans and Robots, here to teach us how we are writing incorrectly for the digital age. If you are in the Austin area, let me know. We can hang out. I'm around until Tuesday, and so far I only have my Thursday fully booked up, so I got some free time. Let's write something that won't be ignored. Welcome to the show, Maddie Osman. Thanks for having me today. Yeah, thanks for being on the show. Why don't you introduce yourself a little for the audience? Sure. So I founded a company called The Blogsmith. We create content for B2B tech brands, primarily for their online presence, whether that's blog or email, um, ebooks, things like that. And then recently, I'm adding the title of author to my resume um, as of This July 18th, my book, Writing for Humans and Robots, The New Rules of Content Style, will be officially launched. So always, always busy. Yeah, sounds like staying (laughs) incredibly busy. Yeah. I've had a couple people, obviously, on that have written before. Um, How'd you find the process? You know, I think it's 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 all very personal, right? What works for me is not always going to work for other people, but in terms of like the type of content that we normally write, like this blog where it's kind of self-contained and it's kind of like a project, um, what I found really helpful is to separate it into stages, like kind of the research and data gathering stage, which is especially important for us because we're helping our clients to be found in relevant search by their target audience. So looking to the data that's out there, what's already ranking and things like that is important because if you don't have that up front, then you might go off on a tangent that doesn't make sense, or you might have to make adjustments for it later. So having some sort of research process and then taking that research and putting it into a usable format, like an outline that will set you up for success when you're actually ready to use the pretty words and, you know, weave it all together and add the visuals and format it. Um, we find that's also a really useful step and, and not just internally, but even working with clients just to make sure that we're on the same page, just like doing the data gathering. It's like, you don't want to get so far ahead that you've done everything, but it's actually not at all what they want. (laughs) So, so having a separate even work period, if you can do it in different days where you're outlining and you're drafting, that's, that's the gold standard. But if you're on a deadline, if you have a lot of content you're creating, I think even doing a separate like work session is good too. Um, Like the Pomodoro method is really great, which for those who don't know is basically setting a timer for 25 minutes and then giving yourself five minutes off after that, but focusing and not getting distracted for whatever it is that you wanted to work on. Um, So we do the outline step and then we do the drafting step. 
Um, and then in our case, we're sending it off to the client. The client might have some edits. And actually, before we send it off to them, we also have a team of editors that goes through the work. So the writer's kind of doing a self-edit. And then um, our team of editors goes in after that to just you know catch anything that they didn't catch. And then the client might have some edits. And then after that, it's you know pushing it live. Uh, revisiting it later if it's kind of a timely topic or one that has a lot of changes. And um, while that's kind of like my team's process, I would say mine is very similar, trying to break things up into steps and and never coming to the drafting session with a completely blank page, because I think that that is just a productivity killer. Yeah, where you're like, okay, I have nothing. Where do what we do go I from do? here? <laughs> exactly. Awesome. Um, so you talked about, you know, search engine optimization. What is it? <laughs> sure. Yeah. So SEO is the short form, which you might be familiar with. Um, it basically is just what you do to try to show up in relevant search. Essentially, when you hit, when you type in a keyword and you hit enter here, you know, here are the results, the search engine results page or the SERP, you could also hear it. So we are trying to get our clients to show up prominently in the SERPs for things that are related to what their audience is looking for. Um, search engine optimization is related to, but different than doing something like paid ads, because you'll notice if you look at the SERP, there's like the results that say ad next to them. And then there's kind of everything else. And you can do both. In fact, if you have the budget, you probably should. What our agency focuses on is the organic side, which is the non-paid side. Very interesting. Yeah. Um, it's the difference with this show. If you leave the title podcast out of it, you end up with a song from somebody I don't recognize. <laughs> nice. Yeah. It was one of those when I started, started making the show, I was like, oh, there's my title. I love it. All right. Great title. Look it up with podcast in the search engine to make sure nobody else has it. Right. Like, oh, cool. No one else has it. <laughs> and then later somebody was like, yeah, I got a song result. I'm like, uh-oh, <laughs> go <That's> back, <laughs> delete um, podcast. There it is. Oh, got it. <laughs> no, like same story with my company, The Blacksmith. Um, not exactly the same, but it's like, yeah, you kind of do your due diligence. You kind of look around and see, has somebody else had this idea before? Whether it applies to like this type of business, this type of medium um, or something else. And one thing that I missed was, and it's so obscure, but I guess AOL used to have like a blogging platform called just blogsmith, not the blogsmith. And so like, I'm never going to get that domain blogsmith.com because like the AOL people own it and they're like never going to get rid of it because they once used it. But, um, so it's funny, like if I set like a mentions alert for that keyword, every once in a while, something will come up and it'll have nothing to do with what we do. And I'm like, oh yeah, that's, that's the words past. Yeah. Like that's this weird relic from AOL. <laughs> nice. It's only going to get worse over time as people build more web properties, content outlets. We're just going to keep reusing stuff. Yeah, of course. Um, so in trying to get yourself noticed on those pages, is it a lot about like the specific words you use versus like, you know, a common word that you'd use? Yeah. So it's, it's interesting. And I, I think it's important if you're trying to like play that game or, or uh, 
yeah, just like if you want to go into this, if you want to learn more about this, it helps to have some sort of tool that has actual data because they're actually just to kind of tangent a little bit. There are a lot of pieces of data within Google search on that search engine results page that you can use to figure out the terminology that your audience is using to search for you or for things like you. So there's like three features. One of them is you type the word in and you get those autocomplete suggestions. Those are based on actual searches. So that's, that's useful data. Um, there's also the people also ask questions that show up in like the middle of that search engine results page. And those are actual questions that people have in relation to whatever topic you searched. So those are really excellent for coming up with like the structure of the content you're creating and making sure it's thorough. Um, and then the last big thing is there's the related searches at the very bottom of that search engine results page. And these are things that's kind of like autocomplete. The difference being that autocomplete is like the law, it's like um, using the same words in the phrase and related searches is just like synonyms. So autocomplete is usually things you could include in your content or maybe other topics that you could consider creating and then kind of linking between them on your website. Whereas related searches, it's kind of the same thing, but it, it's probably ultimately going to be other topics that you would create because it's just slightly different from the keyword that you put in. Um, but to answer your question, what you want to do is use an SEO tool that has some sort of keyword data feature. I like Ahrefs, which is A-H-R-E-F-S. That's not really accessible to like the average content creator or small business owner. And we do this all day. So like it, it's worth it to me to pay for that plan. But um, maybe I'll send you this after we talk here today. But I have an article I wrote for Search Engine Journal, and it's about a bunch of free keyword research tools that'll give you a lot of data, maybe not all the data, but enough to make some decisions. Um, and that's what I would recommend for people who are dabbling or um, who, again, like this isn't kind of their biggest focus, but they still want to get results. Yeah, uh, it makes sense. There was a point in time when I first started this and I was completely new and didn't have any idea what I was doing. I was just putting random words in titles. Yeah. Um, like the day I made the change and I looked over and was like, hey, what's more popular if I put like youth or teen and they're like oh teen is superior in every way and I'm like, <laughs> oh maybe i should use this to make titles now <laughs> that that's definitely a great use case and um and i think it's interesting too like you might have an assumption about what words or word your audience is using to find a certain piece of content but then you use a, a tool like ahrefs or whatever and you plug it in, you're like, actually, there's zero search volume for that. Nobody is using that terminology. But this slight, slightly different one is actually getting all the searches. And it's it's one of those things where it takes you like a minute to do the check or however long your keyword research process is. But it can give you that much more results because you're actually reaching people. Yeah, that was mine. Apparently, no one you know, under the age of like 50 used the words youths anymore. <laughs> so I was like, boy. I am old at soul, I guess. <laughs> I mean, that's an interesting note too, is like, like certain words, different demographics. So if you are targeting an older, maybe you have like a retirement home project or something, then youths would be the way, way to go. Yeah, it was definitely strange, <laughs> but I was like, okay, started, 
started using that and you could see like a definite uptick. Uh, and so I was like, right. all right, I guess I got to use this from now on. <laughs> there you go. So what are just some general like sloppy writing practices that you see all the time? I think like the most obvious one, at least to me, and I think once people hear it, it'll be obvious to them too, is like blocks of text. It's it's something that the human brain, when confronted with that, maybe it just like brings us back to school or something and just like reading through like dense textbooks. And, you know, it's like the information's good. It's just not really formatted well. It's not formatted in a way that like keeps my eye moving. And so an, a very easy fix for that is to just use shorter sentences, use less sentences in a paragraph and just make them a little bit more blurb like. And that's somewhat unique to the web. I mean, if you're reading like a book, you kind of expect chapters to have longer paragraphs and to just have more word copy in general. But um yeah, I mean, creating more white space in general is is a good rule of thumb to keep in mind because it doesn't just have to be limited to like paragraphs and sentences. It can also be things like using more bullet lists, you know, instead of like trying to put a bunch of related things into a paragraph, because if it really is a list, a, a list will make it easier to read and it'll add that white space in. Um, and, and formatting in general, you know, bolding certain things using italics and underlining, not overusing them because that becomes a new issue, but using them thoughtfully to draw people's eyes. I mean, like one example I can think of off the top of my head is we write for a lot of um, SaaS, which is software as a service tools. And so it's like, we're writing about how to use that tool. And so in order to explain that in written form, one thing we'll do is we'll bold mentions of the user interface. So if it's like, how to do something in WordPress will say, go to settings, settings is bold, you know? Um, so, so using, using formatting thoughtfully to sort of guide people to the answer, but also to just make the reader experience really great for them. Um, another thing, and I think I've already made this mistake today, but like while we were talking, but is using really thoughtful language. Um, so one thing that we talked about, like kind of before we got into this is like, you know, sometimes you have to define things for people because they just might not know. Like we don't want to, we don't want to assume knowledge if they're coming here to learn something. And so using, uh, I used to edit so much for writers using words like obviously or clearly. And it's like, it might be obvious to you because you're writing it and you just did all the research, but some this person is coming here to learn something. And so like, we're almost putting them down by, by using that language, whether we mean to or not. Yeah. Where they kind of get this like, oh, ob obviously, ha ha ha. <laughs> and then look <laughs> around like, am I the only one not getting it? <laughs> right. Huh. Interesting. Um, is that why you see... And I've seen some, I think, probably overdone, over exaggerated examples where people will like space out the lining between mm. each line on their their websites. Yeah, I mean, that might be part of it. I and I'm not necessarily advocating for pure double spacing. Like, let's just let's just get that out of the way. That is not what I'm saying. Don't don't add the double space after your period like that is that's done. We're not doing that anymore. <laughs> um, I think to some extent, 
the format of the content dictates the structure, um, the audience in general, because going back to like our geriatric example, <laughs> um, like they might appreciate it being double spaced, right? Like bigger text font. Like these are things that you have to consider if that is your audience. Like you're not going to get by with 10 point, you know, font size or whatever. They're just going to, they're just going to leave and find something else. So if you don't want them to do that and that's your audience, then you need to cater to them. Sure. Yeah. It's one of those, you know, I've talked with other experts about where they're like, if you're watching a movie, you can tell when it's gone on for one second too long in a scene, even if mm-hmm. you don't know that that's why you're realizing it. Mm-hmm. I think it's yeah. the same thing. Like I've read off a website. I don't even know when it was, but it's lodged into my brain where it was like one line of text and then two solid, just spaced lines. And then the next line of text, I'm like, these are really spread out. Right. Yeah. And I think that sometimes when it comes to that, like user reader experience on a website, it doesn't, it's not always a conscious understand. It's not a conscious, um, thought, you know, of what exactly is wrong. You just know something is, and that's, that's almost worse than it being it's unconscious. And it would, it would almost be better if it was conscious because then at least you can make sense of it. But while your brain is sort of deliberating what exactly is wrong here, you kind of miss the point of whatever it was that they're trying to sell or the answer you're trying to get whatever. And and that is a problem. Yeah. I mean, it's like a a bad habit. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. Something that you never, never quite fix, but you know, you should. Yeah. Yeah. So all of this kind of gets down to, you know, communication, which is an enormous topic that we would never get through no matter how long we talk today. True. (laughs) Um, But you saw a very clear reason to switch from, you know, the old style of how we were doing things to this newer style. Where'd you see that? what, What brought it up? Yeah. So I really think I was inspired by the book that anybody who listens to this, that's in writing in some way has probably been exposed to, which is the elements of style, E.B. White and William Strunk. The guy who wrote Charlotte's Web is, uh, is uh, white. Um, so, so everybody's at least been exposed to E.B. White's work, Charlotte's Web, like pretty much everybody's at least seen the movie, but um they both of them together basically created this essential guide. It's not a super long book. It's, it's very small, but it's a reference guide. And it's something that you can quickly figure out those like common things that come up in grammar and spelling and and things like that, uh, best practices. And so my, my thought for this book was initially, I wanted to create something that my team could use as a reference point, because we have our own style guide, which for those who are unfamiliar with that concept, basically journalists use, typically they use AP style, which is just how to write for timely topics um, without bias, how to kind of get to the point, you know, how to format and things like that. There are other style guides, like there, there's Chicago style, which a lot of, um, I think, nonfiction books use. That's, that's what I use for my book. Um, And then there's like APA style, which is more for like medical study, research studies. And so each one of these gives you rules to help you figure out the best way to communicate information. And 
you might have the same information that's covered in a news article, in a research study, and in a book, but you would go about it in all different ways. And these style guides would help you do that. So we have a style guide that is based on AP style, but it's for our team. What AP style is missing, what I think is factoring in the online audience. It's not, it's not necessarily built just for the online audience. So that's where our style guide comes in and builds on it. And so I put this together and I basically wanted to make a resource that communicates with that, that kind of is built on top of that to expand it and give it more examples, give it more context, because people know the rules, they can see what the rules are, but they don't necessarily know the why or the how maybe. And so that's what the book is for. It's, it's, I made it for my team, but it's written in a way that anybody who writes for the web could use it to apply it to their content creation efforts. And so where, where it fits into that elements of style is kind of the same thing with AP style. Um, It's just that that book, the elements of style was written in 1918 they, they didn't, the internet was not a thing, you know, like they could not have anticipated that they weren't, they weren't thinking about that when they wrote it. And so I feel like now is the perfect time to, to reassess because of things like what we've already mentioned, those like awkward situations and user experiences where we can't quite put a finger on why it's wrong, but we know it is. And so if, if we're all operating from the same rule book, or at least the same foundations, then maybe together we can all make it better. Yeah, for sure. It's not like they turn to each other like, hey, EB, does this background graphic work with our text choice? <laughs> it's a good contrast. <laughs> yeah. How will this look on the screen? Yes. What do you think of this? Is this too bright? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I think it would you know, blow people away that a lot of the resources that we use every day have not changed in forever. And that doesn't necessarily work if the thing you're working on has changed in the last couple of years. Right. I mean, it, it's helpful up to a point, right? Cause it's like elements of style, even though it was written over a century ago and how that I like actually I'm doing the math, it's still like, it is still a fundamental guide. Like I'm not, I'm not suggesting we replace it. I'm basically saying let's build on it and let's let's make it more comprehensive. Yeah, it's very much like an update to the system, mm-hmm. um, which I mean, everything we use now gets updated. Like your phone updates regularly, so right why- stuff changes often. And I mean, even this book that I wrote is probably going to be outdated or will need an update, you know, a couple years from now, maybe sooner. I mean, who, who knows like what's next down the pipeline. We got the metaverse and VR and like, who knows? Yeah. I cannot imagine how writing is going to need to change for a VR platform. Oh my God. I don't even, I can't even think about it right now. (laughs) Yeah. That's, uh, that's going to be a whole thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess another interesting thing that's worth bringing up is is how writing and how writing for the internet has changed recently, which is that some things that writers are perhaps a little bit nervous about are all these like AI GPT-3 tools that basically generate copy for you based on certain inputs, certain formats that you're trying to create it for. And um, I think it's I think it's really interesting to see how those are developing, how close they can even get to human language. 
Um, and, you know, the one thing, I don't think I say this in my book, but it's just come up in terms of like the humans and robots angle, which is just that robots don't have empathy. Like we can't, maybe we could program something that looks like it into them, but I, I would argue that they don't have it. And I don't know that they ever will. Have you ever watched Westworld? I have. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I kind of feel like some of those robots maybe have empathy. Sure. Yeah. I, um, I agree. There was a <laughs> program somebody got me a, to use once, mm. which you just like enter a prompt or like a sentence mm. and then hit like a generate button and it builds off of yours to try and make like Ooh. a comprehensive story. And That's based cool. based on the way you used it, um, I don't even remember what it was. Otherwise, I'd love to credit them for it. Yeah. Um, but like based on the way you wrote, if you wrote it like a bullet point, it would just give you a series of bullet points. And if mm. you wrote it like a real sentence, it would give you the rest of a paragraph. Interesting. Um, it was it was interesting. It loses the thread pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Like if yeah. you ask it to generate more than one, you know, one set, like the right. second paragraph is so wildly askew because it uses its own measures to like expand on it and it's just gone. Um, (laughs) But some of those that like I've talked to people about is this, you know, like the dopamine reaction in your brain Mm. when you hear certain things Mm. that's so hard to recreate that I don't know that you could just teach a computer to, you know, to relate to it. Right. I mean, you bring up a good point, which is just that I think those tools are really good at maybe like the beginning of that process. If it's like tightly defined, if you just need like a couple lines of copy or something like that, they, they excel at creating a foundation for you. And I think that I think that writers should think about using those tools to, to help with idea generation or to get some like variations of a heading a title, you know, things like that. I think that's where it's really helpful, but it's, you just can't stop it there. You have to add back in that missing human element. And um, this was a couple of years ago, but I was at like a, a speaking event thing where um, we had this one speaker who was talking about how she had run a test where she did like a couple social copy variants on her Twitter that she wrote, but then she did some that a robot wrote and you look at them and you're like, these are like indistinguishable. Like, I don't know which one is the human and the robot until she told me, but she said that like in her sort of split test of, of checking out which one would perform better, the human generated copy always outperformed the robot, even though you couldn't, you could not tell by looking at it. Interesting. Yeah, it's like an intuition that you just look at it and you're like, oh, that's definitely a human thing. Yeah, you think you think you know. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, it's it's the subconscious reaction though, right? That's like making the decision about what what is actually going to drive like a conversion if if we're doing marketing. And I think that's the other important thing to to note in this topic of like writing for humans and writing for robots. It's like robots can't buy anything from you, you know? So like, we're not, we're not like caring too much about their, about converting them or their opinions because they can't give either of those things really. Yeah. you like, it's great to have the eyeballs on page, right? even if they're robotic eyeballs on the page, but like, ultimately you still have to market to the people that are reading right. it. Cannot, cannot forget the human element there. Yeah. If you want to make money. <laughs> right. 
<laughs> so what are some of the biggest changes that like what moves the needle most when you're say I was an author who had 50 years as a like print copy Sorry. guy and I'm going to move all of my stuff over to whichever website I'm using to like sure. now I write here yeah um I think the fundamentals remain the same that's that's like the really good news is that I feel like content creation in general is like never going to be a bad bet as far as like where to get your experience where to build up a following or whatever um and like even when people talk about oh like robots are going to take over our jobs what I think about in response to that that like humans are still the best at whether whether they're sort of trained for the online world or they're coming from print you know or something like that what we're best at, I think, beyond the, the empathy element is like we have the opportunity to create like a really human friendly visual format for the content. Like we've already talked about formatting. Um, so that goes into it. And, and also like just like things like typography, font size, making sure that that makes sense for the audience who's actually going to read it and that it resonates with them. But the other thing is like the actual visuals, because from for our team, writing the words is like almost like a half of the project. It's also like making it kind of like the visual merchandising of it so that it is attractive to a reader so that they do want to keep reading it so that they are excited to read it in the first place. It starts with having you know, some sort of feature image that is representative of the brand, but also enticing in terms of the topic and having a feature image that's good is something that they don't just see when they like click through and, you know, read the article, but it's something that if it's set up correctly on the website, it shows up when you share it on social media, um, you know, certain things like that, or yeah, most, that's mostly applicable to social, but there might be other places that are kind of like reading those images and, and displaying them as like a preview. So that's something to be really thoughtful about because between the title and like the featured image, if people aren't enticed by those things, they're not going to read the rest of the content. Um, but it's also using on-brand visuals within the content. And what I mean by that is like, you wouldn't, if, if you're like a really professional, formal brand, like you're probably not going to use funny gifts, you know? Um, you're probably going to focus more on stuff like maybe some like nice looking statistics graphics or, you know, maybe like screenshots of your product um, and things like that. And so I think it's, you have to be thoughtful even here too about who exactly your audience is and what types of visuals not only will resonate with them that they'll like, but what is going to help them understand the content. And so when I think about going back to that idea of like a visual statistic, I think I'm so left brain creative that when I see a statistic in written copy, it doesn't really resonate with me. I'm just like reading it, you know, like, it's just like, oh, okay, that's a fact or whatever, but it, it doesn't, I don't like really fully understand it until I see that picture that's kind of comparing, you know, like two different numbers or, or whatever it is. That's, that's what gets it for me. That's, that's how I get it is by seeing the visual next to the copy. And so I guess what I'm trying to say is it's just it's just being thoughtful about how different people learn, how different people read um, and, and helping them and trying to, to add those different things. And it's also thinking about 
you know, like, like you have this podcast and there are different ways that you could repurpose that content without having to create fully new content. Right. But you could, you could rip the audio, which is what you do. You could have a video version for people who just like videos. Um, you could take the transcript and publish that as a blog post. You could take the transcript and sort of rewrite it. That's another way you could do it. Um, you could share snippets of it. So I think, I think that's another important thing to think about is just like, how do I, how do I take the content I already have that's really good and people like, and how do I make it more understandable for them by changing the format and, and matching what they, what they like or how they learn best? Yeah, there is definitely something to that. Um, like a podcast is an entirely audio medium by nature. Sure. Um, but like to even get you to come into the show, mm. we have to have, you know, the thumbnail, which is an unusual amount of work, I think, for what I was going into this with. <laughs> um, you have to have like the catchy name. You have to have a good description because like my thumbnail I like. Um, I'm working with a photographer on a new one. So we're trying to just like spitball ideas right now. Mm-hmm. Um, but like it has to stand out because if it looks like just another face in the crowd, people just browse right by it. They don't even right. look. There's so much competing for people's attention. Yeah. So then they're like, okay, you see, you know, the light bulb image that I use, people stop just dumb enough. Like, and that's where I lose some people is they're like, I don't want to be <laughs> dumb. And then they just like leave. Right. And I'm like, it's a good thing. Come back. Uh, <laughs> but they get in there. Like, and I've seen it, you know, in some of the like behind the scenes statistics mm-hmm. that you get is people like will browse through stuff. And then if they don't see something in the description, like they just go right by that episode. Yep. It's, it's all about that merchandising of whatever the product is, because it doesn't matter how good the product is. If people don't understand what they're going to get out of it and, and how it's relevant to them. And that's what yeah. all those things do. The visuals, the the copy, the positioning. Yeah. It's yeah, it, everything makes huge differences, especially in the digital world, because oh my God, yeah. like our attention spans are so short that if it doesn't immediately grab you, like it just move on. Right. You got, you got other stuff to do. So, you know, if, if it doesn't fit into your already busy schedule, because you're so compelled by the things that you saw, then, then yeah, it, it'll just get ignored. Which is a weird, like crossover to where word of mouth comes into a lot of <laughs> things is like, yeah. if you tell somebody about it, they will overlook a lot of the weird, you know, mm. jankier stuff just to be like, well, I was told to be here. So I'm here. It looks strange, but I made it. Yeah. I mean, a personal recommendation carries so much weight because part of it is like whoever recommended it might also like follow up on it. And so you want to, you want to do it just so you could say that you did and you didn't like ignore the recommendation. So yeah, I, I kind of like over overshadows whatever your thoughts might be about whatever it is that they've shared with you. Yeah. It's definitely the human eyeballs. Mm-hmm. Like, nobody else human is going to do that. <laughs> it drives things. Nice. So, you know, when you look at people that are making this content and they need to use those images, is there a best practice? Mm, Well, what we say to our writers on our team is to try to insert a visual about every 300 words or so, because that's about every subheading that we're writing. 
So if you think of like a section of a blog being somewhere around 300 words, and, and that might include some like sub subsections too. And if we're talking about creating something to help people understand how to use like a software tool, there might be more visuals than that too. I think, I think once every 300 is a good rule of thumb. It gives people something to sort of like see on the edge of the screen. Um, in web design, people talk about above the fold and below the fold. And, and it, it actually relates back to print journalism too, because we're talking about the newspaper when it's folded up, you know, you get the Sunday paper or whatever. And above that fold is kind of like the most exciting stories. It's, it's the thing that gets you to, to start reading and then to flip the pages. It's the same thing with web design. Anything before you start scrolling is above the fold. And so you want to have some things vi visual, visible, basically, no matter where you're scrolling on the page, you want like that next thing to be like just below the fold so that they're like, oh, what is that? So that's that's my rule of thumb is for there to always be something that they can see when they're scrolling that's not just a block of text. Gotcha. Yeah. They can see just the top of the image and they're like, well, now I want to know what the image is. Gotta see it. Yeah. 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 And I mean, one thing that you can do too, to sort of test this within your own content is um, using like a heat map tool, which basically um, lets you see where people move their mouse on your page. So um, if, if you were in like a psychology lab, they would do um, an eye tracking test and, and that, and they would do that. So the mouse is like a little bit removed from that because obviously your mouse isn't going everywhere your eyes are going, but it's kind of like an imperfect solution for somebody who's just kind of, you know, messing around and, and digging into the details at home outside of a lab. And um, I'm trying to think there's, um, I think it's called Microsoft Clarity. This was something that launched in the past year or two, but it's a free thing that you install um, and kind of like the header of your website. It's like a JavaScript that just runs in the background. Um, Hotjar is a paid one, but I think they actually have a very generous free tier. So that's another one if you just want to like play around and you just, just like Google Analytics, if you're familiar with that, you just install it, you wait, the data gathers, and then you can, you can kind of, creep on what people are doing and understand where it is in the page that they're dropping off. I mean, that can be a really useful tool if you're going back through something maybe you wrote in the past and you're like, why isn't this performing as well now? Well, look and see how people are interacting with it. And maybe you need to move some things around. Maybe you have to like rewrite a section. Maybe you want to add a new visual. Um, but yeah, data is always a great way to, to sort of figure out how, why things are not like hitting the mark with your target audience. Yeah. There's a lot of things like that across all the medias where, oh, for sure. I mean, like your basic web page has the like time spent on average mm -hmm. and you're like, one. you're like, obviously if this thing is, you know, took 10 pages in word process or whatever, um, they should spend more than a minute on the page. <laughs> so like so. <laughs> good indicator. Um, but like YouTube has things like that mm -hmm. where it's like, you can see the graph on right where they fall off. And right, like, right. Oh, it's weirdly at minute four. What was I doing at minute three and a half? <laughs> right, right. How did I bore them so much right here? Yeah. So it seems like there's a lot of things for, and obviously there's one for podcasting where it's like, yeah, people stop listening at this time slot. Um, so it's good to know that there are other tools that help you kind of track, you know, where you lose people 
Right. And, and Google Analytics is like the quintessential. It's free. A lot of people use it. So there's just a lot of direction out there if you're trying to figure it out. Um, you know, another, I think another good metric to bring up is bounce rate, which is like somebody visits one page on your site, but then they never visit another one. And maybe, maybe they got the answer to their question. Right. But the idea is once you get them on the site, you're trying to kind of move them to checking out other stuff, you know, maybe getting in touch, maybe making a purchase. So, um, it's good to just get familiar with those metrics. It can definitely be overwhelming to look at that dashboard for the first time and like, wow, there's a lot of graphs and numbers and and all that. But um, they do have the Google Analytics Academy where you can kind of go through and and the Google team walks you through all the different things, all the reports, all the metrics. So um, if you have a, a weekend to spare to dig in and this is like, you know, part of your business or you're a content creator who's trying to grow, I think that's really worth your time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's all about the time you put in is the time you get out, right? So, 100%. well, I've appreciated this. I think it's a lot of good information <laughs> that, like, you know, people need to hear and think about and, you know, reflect on what they do outside of this. Cause no matter what you do, there's some impact. And whether you need, you know, this new style. So you're like, hey, I need to appeal to an online audience. Right. Or, you know, you're somebody that's listening that's like, I've never heard of these other styles. Like, <laughs> You probably learned one of them and you've just been using it forever. Yeah. Um, but I think it's a lot of interesting things for people to think about and I've appreciated your time. I want you to like give some time to you to plug, you know, <laughs> what you've been doing and the things people can find you on. Totally. Yeah. So um, if, if you liked what we talked about today, and especially if you're a content creator, I would highly recommend checking out my book, which again is Writing for Humans and Robots, The New Rules of Content Style. It is available for pre-order on Amazon today and will launch officially on July 18th of 2022. It will also have a print version. Unfortunately, Amazon does not let you pre-sell the print if you do it through their print-on-demand platform. So um, so add it to your wish list if you need to. But um, as far as where else you can find me online, there's a book website if you want to learn more about that. It's just writingforhumansandrobots.com. Um, if you want to follow along with what we're doing with content, especially um, if you're just looking for examples of how we've put all these principles into action, um, check out theblogsmith.com. I'll also share with you, Colton, um, we have a version of our style guide that people can check out if they want to use that. So I'll send you that after this. Um, and then finally, if you have any questions, you just want to chat about content, I'm most active on Twitter and it's at Maddie Osman. So I'll probably be on one of those places at any time of the day. Awesome. And I know <laughs> I will need to, I will need to look at all these articles and books because my ability to write online is atrocious, but it's getting better slowly. <laughs> <laughs> well, I would say you're definitely like a consumer of the internet, a creator of the internet, just by having a podcast. And it's just like, what little things can you do each day to, to make your process better and to just, yeah, make stuff more understandable for the ultimate audience. So just by thinking about it, that's already a big step. Yeah. All right. Well, awesome. Thank you very much. I hope you had a good time. Definitely. Thanks for listening to the just dumb enough podcast. If you want to help the show grow, rate it wherever you're listening to it, share it with people. I know my audio is terrible, so I may get out of here real quick and not waste your time. Remember, you can reach out to me at 
dumbenoughpodcast at gmail.com or on any of the Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, whatever pages. Thank you for listening. I'll see you in the next one.